Hello, and welcome to In All Things, a podcast of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a global movement of Evangelical Presbyterian Churches. Thank you for joining us. I'm Rachel Joseph. Your host for In All Things is Dean Weaver, Stated Clerk of the EPC. Our prayer is that God uses Dean and his guests to both inform and inspire you about how God is working in and through the EPC. The motto of our family of churches is, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Now, here's Dean. And thank you, Rachel. And thank you to everyone who is listening in again to this edition of In All Things, a podcast that drops every Friday with different guests associated with, affiliated with the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. We started out our podcast introducing the EPC to different leaders, staff members in the Office of the General Assembly and National Leadership. Um, we branched out to other thought leaders and authors uh, in the EPC who have broader application to the church. And you'll have the opportunity today to hear from um, a sister in Christ from one of our EPC congregations. She's a ruling elder and who has an amazing life story of transformation and has written a book and is um, doing a lot of speaking and a lot of podcasts and things whose story is just gripping and uh, you're going to be blessed by that. And so we hope what you will do is um, kind of bookmark uh, wherever you get your podcasts, that you'll bookmark this podcast, that on social media you'll share it with others. This is one of those stories. Uh, For example, if you're in a Bible study and you're thinking about evangelism and you need a really good story from someone who's got a compelling story to tell, this would be one of those ones you want to share with those people in your small group or your Bible study. Uh, But we'll talk about that in just a second. Before we get into our conversation for today, just want to remind you about two of our global, strategic, what we're really calling gospel priorities uh, as a part of the EPC. And that has to do, two of those that we've been highlighting of late have to do with church planting and church health. Uh, Church planting, obviously we were hoping that every congregation in the EPC would be a parent, patron, or a partner. And of course, it starts with prayer. All you have to do is begin to pray, Lord, how could our congregation be involved in the breaking in of your kingdom in our community by possibly helping to either be a, a parent, patron, or partner in a church plant? And I'm going to encourage you to consider getting on the EPC website and looking for Tom Ricks. Tom is our new national director of church planting. Now I say new, Tom has been around for a long time, has planted probably more than a half a dozen churches uh, through his home church But Tom has retired from pastoral ministry to come on full-time as our uh, National Director of Church Planning. He's been doing it as a volunteer and with stipends and kind of in an as-needed capacity. But we're very excited to be able to have someone with Tom's experience and background giving full-time effort to helping us move toward being a really full church planting denomination. So if you want to know, how can I begin praying? Here's your first prayer. Currently, we have about 630-ish congregations and about 53 church plants. And that's, uh, I don't have the the science in my head, but that's less than 10%, probably about 7.5%. We would like to get to where 10% of our congregations are church plants. And so to be able to grow from 53-ish church plants up to, say, 63-ish church plants over the next couple of years, 
well, that's only going to happen if God's people seek his face in prayer. So um, we'd love to see your congregation be a, a parent, patron, or a partner, but it starts with prayer. And you could start praying not only for your church to get engaged, but also for the whole EPC, that we might get to that tithe, that 10% number, because we think there might be kind of spiritual tipping point in terms of our being able to reach that level. So please pray for us in that regard. Also, as it relates to church health, uh, we think that every church ought to be a healthy church, and every healthy church is going to be a a growing church in terms of maturity and discipleship. And part of what that means is people who share the gospel with their neighbors. The chosen tool that the EPC is now using is called the Three Circles. And if you've never experienced the Three Circles, we encourage you to go to your presbytery meeting. Every presbytery has a church health coordinator with the videos, with the equipping, who can come to your congregation and help set it up. So whether it's at your youth groups or your Sunday school classes or your small groups or even in worship or with your elders or deacons or whoever, that we can equip our congregations with a very simple, straightforward tool so that people can share the good news of Jesus with their friends, neighbors, coworkers, and family members. That's the three circles. And you can go to the EPC website at epc.org, go to what we do, click on evangelism, and you'll see a whole bunch of good information there to help you to share your faith. Now, speaking of helping to share your faith, we've got a great story of someone who's got a faith to share, who came to Christ out of an unusual background. Lisa Brockman is a sixth-generation Mormon who came to faith as a student at the University of Utah, which is kind of the the mecca, if you will. I mean, that's that's really right there in the center of a lot of uh, Mormon gathering. And so her book uh, that she has written is called Out of Zion, Meeting Jesus in the Shadow of the Mormon Temple. Out of Zion, Meeting Jesus in the Shadow of the Mormon Temple. And Lisa is a ruling elder at First Presbyterian Church of Orlando and serves on the staff with crew in their global digital strategies. And perhaps of all things most important in her impressive resume is she is a homeschooling mom of five. (laughs) And uh, as a homeschooling dad who raised six, and a daughter who is now homeschooling four. We may have to get off on a conversation so on that. So much but empathy coming toward <laughs> it's you. Lots Aww. of empathy. Yeah, but I'm past that part of the I journey. I graduated, though. I graduated from homeschooling. I need to upgrade, update <laughs> my bio. Okay. Yes, yeah, so okay. hallelujah. That was such a good day. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, Lisa, welcome to In All Things. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Lisa, help us to get to know you. You grew up where, and give us a little bit of that content. Okay. Also an addendum, I've now shifted to an arts ministry with crew. So I, since I, my book was published, I, everybody is required to be a professional artist in order to be on staff with Transform. And so I have this fabulous place of work where I get to integrate my book ministry, speaking ministry. I'm a spiritual director also. Okay. And then also I have done graduate work in spiritual formation. So I get to merge all of these three areas in working with artists, which is... Are you an artist yourself? A writer. A writer. Okay. Excellent. Okay. And a culinary artist. Okay. (laughs) In this foodie generation. Yeah, in this foodie generation. Right. Yeah. So I grew up in Salt Lake City in a devout Mormon family, and it encompassed our whole lives. It was something that 
from the time I was five years old. I was so proud to be a Mormon, and my whole life's trajectory was to work toward a temple marriage where I would one day marry the man of my dreams, who I knew I would just find, and there we would begin to work our way into exalting into the celestial kingdom, which would be our equivalent of eternal life and exalt into gods and goddesses. And that was the framework for my whole life. And so I would say that my life hinged on personal worthiness because our entire culture and theology was about making ourselves worthy of Heavenly Father's love and acceptance and making ourselves worthy of eternal life. Okay, and how would that be accomplished? How would you, you're growing up as a child and you're thinking, I I need to demonstrate that I'm worthy so that I could inherit the celestial kingdom. And I think what a lot of people don't appreciate about true Mormon theology is you end up with this notion of you find your partner Mm -hmm. and you two become basically uh, celestial beings for your own. Yes, gods and goddesses populating our own world one day, like the god of this earth did here. Right. Right. Yes. So how did you achieve that worthiness? What was what was important in well, that? Well, it begins ultimately it's a temple marriage. So five percent approximately of active Mormons are temple going Mormons. So the big, very beautiful Mormon buildings that are usually positioned very strategically in a community, those are for the Mormon who is extremely devout, and they have to meet a number of standards and requirements in order to obtain what's called a temple recommend. And so in order to receive a temple marriage, first you need to be baptized a member of the Mormon church and confirmed a member of the Mormon church. So when I was eight years old, that's the standard age for a child who's grown up in Mormonism as a Mormon, where at eight years old I was baptized by my dad. And then confirmed a member of the Mormon church. And there I began my eternal journey. Mm. And so uh, that's the first step. And then from that time forward, it's making myself pure, keeping myself pure, keeping the word of wisdom, which is, it's like a, a health code of sorts. Avoid, like not able to drink coffee, tea, use tobacco, drink alcohol. So it's a moral code. That, that- one is a... a health code. Okay. Okay. Then there's a whole long list of moral codes. Okay. And so keeping myself morally pure and having pure relationships and then a life of service. There's so service is so knit into the fabric of the Mormon community and serving others, going to church every Sunday. Just being faithful to all they're called the laws and ordinances of the gospel. And then as you get older, as I got older, at 12 years old, I was able to start participating in what are called baptisms for the dead Mm. in the basement of the Mormon temple. There are these different activities that we participated in and we're required to participate in. And for men and women, the standards are a little bit different. But all of these things, paying a full tithe, obeying the word of wisdom, staying morally pure, a life of service, active church membership and church attendance. These are just a few of the long list of what makes you worthy of a temple marriage and participating in those ceremonies. So as a reformed thinking evangelical follower of Jesus, 
we would kind of categorize that as a works righteousness. Yes. In other words, you you do all of those things, all that work, and that equates to God being pleased with you, right? right? Yes. And that can feel super heavy and onerous. Like that's a burden to carry. It is a heavy, heavy burden. Yeah. And when I was eight years old at my baptism, it didn't feel that weighty. It was like I wasn't a big wage earner, so paying a full tithe wasn't really a burden. Right. Staying morally pure wasn't really much of a burden. Mm-hmm. Going to church on Sunday, that's a have to. So it was like throwing pebbles into the foundation of my eternal destiny. But then as I became a preteen and there were more temptations and relationships, and I liked kissing Chris Pace, and <laughs> I knew I was breaking moral laws. And that Heavenly Father was coming and going based on my worthiness. And I knew I was unworthy a good part of the time. And I still was striving for worthiness, though. And so, yes, living in that tension. And there's nowhere in Mormonism for the shadow side of a person. Mm. And so it's this schism in my soul began to form because I needed to show goodness and worthiness and morality in the community. But I also knew there's this part of me that's very drawn to the shadows. Right. And there was nowhere for that. Could you unpack that a little bit more for us? Because when I think of, you know, if your background in spiritual formation and spiritual direction, we know that we are fallen people. We know, like from Romans 7, when Paul says, you know, why do I do the things I know I shouldn't do and don't do the things I know that I should do? Oh, wretched man that I am. I think we're all aware of the fact that there's light and darkness in each of us. So if there's no space for that, what does that do? I think it created in me, I can only speak for my own story, but a very hidden life. Hmm. The older I got, like once I, once I was in high school, my friends started partying, my Mormon friends, and breaking the word of wisdom. And that was a serious law break right there like heavenly father you are completely unworthy at that point of Mm. his presence of his blessings and so i just like buckled down i've got to resist i i can't fall to that it was this the yoke of slavery that paul talks about it's like you're under i was under that yoke of slavery hiding but then what it also creates is that law that brings about a sort of hunger to, to be satisfied. Our souls are so hungry and so thirsty. And so there's a futility that began to form in me that by the time I'm a senior in high school, I'm like a pressure cooker waiting to blow mm-hmm. because I'm hiding and I'm lying and I'm deceiving my parents. And mm. my flesh is very excited to do the things that I'm told you cannot do. You will not be worthy of eternal life if you do. And so by my senior year, my only option without grace was to say, screw you, and then go to a life of total licentiousness, looking for freedom. And so when you're on that pendulum of the law, there's no grace on that spectrum. It's licentiousness on one end and the law on the other. And it's a whole other paradigm to go into a life of grace with God. But I couldn't find that space first, so I, my pendulum swung to a life of license, where then it was shutting down my conscience and saying yes to all the things I'm supposed to say no to. So I really fleshed out that reality of, well, what I don't want to do, I do, but then they became, I don't care, so I'm going to do what I want to do. Mm. 
Did and you battle with uh, guilt or anxiety or depression or anything along the lines as you were I kind of com- compartmentalizing that? No, the, it was a lifetime of guilt and anxiety that finally the abuse of alcohol, the abuse of drugs, immoral relationships set me free from the guilt. Wow. But what I didn't know is it was leading me into a deeper kind of bondage right? as addictions formed in my body. Isn't that amazing, right? Because it, it promises you freedom, and there's a certain sense in which it did, but it opened the door to even in greater bondage. Absolutely. Wow. A line I have in my book is that I wrote, the biblical God is the only God who has not abused and will not abuse his authority over me. Mm. I just lived a life where every other God that I turned to for life and wholeness of some, some meager attempt abused his authority over me. Wow. That's profound. So you're, now take us to college. So mm-hmm. you're going off to college. Yes. You're uh, you grew up in Salt Lake City. You're going to University of Utah. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's going to be a strong Mormon population in that community as well. Yes. But you get onto campus, and then what goes on from there? Well, I was supposed to play tennis for Brigham Young University, but because I was in this season of rebellion, I just thought the summer before my freshman year, I do not want to go be under that yoke of slavery. Mm. I didn't have those words for it, but there was nothing in me that wanted to go into more rules. And so the University of Utah coach offered me a place on his team like months before my freshman year. And that's where I see God redirecting my Mm. path in a way that I couldn't even have planned if I'd thought about it I wasn't no. that thoughtful at that were you, point were your life. parents okay with that redirection because I would think Brigham Young would have been like the ideal ideal place right yes. yeah they both are graduates of the University of Utah okay and so I mean the the population of Mormons at the University of Utah at the time I was there was about 55 percent so mm-hmm. it was still really yeah. high okay and it was only a half mile from their house. So they were happy I'd be close by. Okay. But I was in this season of rebellion. So I end up at the University of Utah. I pledge Kappa Kappa Gamma. I'm on the tennis team. And the athletic scene was a dark, dark space. And so it just was the perfect space for me in all of my rebellion. But... It's so hard for Still. me to picture now. This is an audio podcast, not a visual podcast. So, But if you all could just see, this is a bright, effervescent <laughs> daughter of Christ who this dark, dark, dark stuff, I'm having a hard time picturing it, Lisa. Oh, you should have seen me. <laughs> <laughs> I know. People say that. They're like, I don't even have a category for what you would have been like. Right. I was the fun one. Okay, okay. anyway, I still am. And okay. I'm like, I don't need that anymore, yeah. Yeah. thankfully. Yeah, so it was a friend on the University of Utah tennis team in October. She's like, Lisa, I got to line you up with this baseball player. His name's Gary. You've got to meet Gary. You guys are going to click. And so she kept saying that, and I'm like, well, let's see it. Let's, like, bring it. So she lined Gary and myself up one night, and it was fireworks. Like, we were, like, magnets drawn to each other. And so we began to go out. Well, shortly after we'd started spending time together, he asked me what my faith was. I'm like, I'm a Mormon, but I'm just, I devoutly believe it. Nothing in me questions its truthfulness. I would never have gone there. Nothing questioned it. I knew I'm going to do this season of rebellion, clean up my act when I'm ready to repent, which is different than biblical repentance, 
it means you'll never, ever commit the sin again. And so that's another place where if I'm in a season of rebellion, I am not going to enter into confession with my bishop and do that whole process until I'm ready to really make this change. Mm. And so tell him I'm a Mormon, I'm partying. And then I asked him what he believed. And he said, I'm a born again Christian. I'm like a born a what? Like, I've never heard of one of those in my life, and I hadn't. And growing up in Utah, I was very sheltered. Mm. I'd heard of some major denominations. Like, I did, we'd drive by a Presbyterian church and a Lutheran church on our way to school, but I, I just didn't know people who went to those churches. Mm. And I had one friend in high school who was a Baptist. That's it. So all that to say, I'm like a born-again Christian, and he just was explaining it, and I'm like, whatever. But what was unique about Gary is the way he talked about God. And that's where I experienced the relationality. Mm. And I'd never heard anybody talk about God that way. And it was actually really annoying. I'm like, why is he like, everything's God, 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 Jesus, Jesus. And I think it's because in Mormonism, Jesus is like wallpaper in the background. Okay. And we use his name a lot, but he's just back here. It's very humanistic. It's all about us exalting ourselves Hmm. in front of this wallpaper of Jesus. And so anyway, that's where I began with Gary. And I was like, okay, we're both partying, but Gary knew his theology backwards and forwards. So we're about a month into our relationship, driving around campus. It's winter. The snow's falling. We're picking up report cards because that, that's what you did back then. There was no internet. And I put my hand on the handle of the door, and I go to open it. And, I mean, I, it's like I'm back there now. Gary said, Lisa, how do you know the church is true? And I whip my head around, and I said, because I've experienced a burning in the bosom, and I know that it is. And he said, how could you... And trust your entire eternal destiny to an emotional experience. And I had no other way of knowing. Emotional experiences, a burning in the bosom was a Mormon's plumb line for knowing this is true. Mm. And then he proceeded to ask me how I knew that Joseph Smith, our founding prophet, was a true prophet of God. And I said, because I've experienced a burning in the bosom, I know that he is. But how does an emotional experience validate someone being a true prophet. I had never considered these things. How can you defend the historicity of Mormonism? Ethicities, ossities, and I, in about 10 minutes, felt like that firm foundation that I had felt so secure in turned to quicksand, and I was in a free fall. Mm. And then it was about a month where I just said, I can't talk about this. Like, I was filled with terror. And I knew Mormonism was true, but it terrified me that I couldn't defend it. And I'd never been challenged to, but I just thought after about a month, okay, Gary and I are growing closer together. We've got to reconcile something. And he was very persistent. And so we, in the new year, began after Christmas break, we began Bible study because we held the Bible. He believed it to be the word of God, period. Mormons believed it to be true as far as it was translated correctly. And Joseph Smith was like the magic translator. Which is kind of ironic considering he was illiterate. Yes. (laughs) It's hard to figure out how you can actually be a translator and discover these uh, plates, you know, and written in a language no one's ever discovered. But he actually was illiterate. Yes. There's nothing logical about Mormonism. Absolutely nothing. And so 
talking to a Mormon in a logical manner is not your first foot forward because it's like you said, like it doesn't make sense. Right. Well, and if the basis of truth is that uh, uh, burning in the bosom plumb line that you yes. described, then it then it really appeal to reason and addressing those things directly is not going to connect anyway. Right. So we began this Bible study and the first, it was a 10 month journey with Gary and I, a few of the mile markers for me, our first study, I remember the Bible study laying out this idea of the Trinity and I had never heard of that. And I was like, this is the most insane thing I've ever heard in my life. And every Bible study just enraged me. Because the Mormon God is flesh and bones, not spirit, and we don't have this triune God, three people manifested eternally in one God. It's like we have three separate, well, the Holy Spirit, we have the Holy Ghost, we have Heavenly Father, who's flesh and bones, and he was once a man who exalted himself into Godhood. And then Jesus is the actual offspring of Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, and so he's literally the Son physically the son and so as is joseph smith correct joseph smith we are all spiritual offspring of heavenly father and heavenly mother got it and we're jesus's siblings from this pre-existing world okay according to mormon theology so the idea of one god manifest in three persons he wasn't explaining it like that it was just anyway trinity angry i was so mad i'm like this is absurd and so anyway but it was basic it was creating this idea that what is love and who is the origin of love and if you're going to be in a relationship with somebody this is the foundation for love so it began there and these major doctrinal stumbling blocks for me were the trinity and then soon after that the study took us into what is our nature and I believed I had a divine nature. I'm, phys- I'm offspring of Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, and I'm born perfectly good. The irony. Like, I did not have... The first time Gary told me, Lisa, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, our nature is sinful. I was like, I am not sinful! And I, like, everything in my life said sinful! <laughs> like, the, I mean, it's just really ironic that I could not see, and there's such a spiritual blindness... And so our Bible studies just chinked away at the spiritual blindness. And like something dark jumped out at Gary from inside of me when he said, you're sinful and I'm sinful. And then <laughs> another stumbling. So Another great irony there, right? Oh, totally. And so Gary and I continued to do Bible study. And what was really hard is that with every study, what I began to see is, Mormon theology is 180 degrees upside down from biblical theology. And so the notion that I think a lot of people who are casual about this, right, a lot of casual folks will maybe think that Mormonism sometimes is just you drove past a Presbyterian church, you drove past a Lutheran church, you drove past a Mormon church. It's another Christian denomination, but it really isn't. It's a totally different religion, right? It's a totally different religion, different God Different Jesus, different Father, different Spirit, works-based, yes. Yeah. And so as Gary and I went through those Bible studies, 
what I needed to do was come to terms with, okay, what do I believe about the Bible? Is it a reliable source? Because these two books, the Book of Mormon and the Bible, are at odds. Mm. And now I need to figure out which one I'm going to place trust in. And so I read Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It just really challenged me. But it also gave me every, it's like it established the foundation for the trustworthiness of the Bible. Mm. And then I read Josh McDowell's More Than a Carpenter. And that was, that like those two were the hinges that shifted my world and brought the deepest terror because I knew everything's going to crumble and I might lose my family over this, but I can't not continue to search. So I began to research Mormonism and its authenticity, the authenticity of a prophet and historicity of Mormonism, the historicity of Christianity. Did your family know that you were on this journey at this point? No, they didn't. Okay. And I, that, that's something that grieves me so much about Mormonism is that you're taught not to question and you're threatened with excommunication from the body if you do. And so there's just not an environment where you can bring your concerns. It's like, no. We don't do that, especially back then. It's a little different today. So five months in, I began to place my trust in the Bible as the true word of God and then started to begin dealing. I knew I needed a savior. I knew I, I was sinful. It's like the quarter kept dropping over these major doctrinal issues, and the Trinity was my greatest stumbling block. And back in the late 80s, early 90s, I just don't know, in Utah anyway, People didn't see me quipped to talk about the Trinity. And in the church, as an evangelical Christian, probably for the first 14 years, I, I did not, I was not exposed to Trinitarian theology. Isn't that a sad it, statement? Oh my gosh, because when I was, it was Larry Crabb, at my, he was my school of spiritual direction teacher, and I felt like the world had been open to me. It changed everything mm. in my life with God. Mm. And I'm like, why are we not talking about this trinity? But back then it was like all heresy. So God's like an egg. He's the white. He's the yolk. Right. He's the shell. And I'm like, you have an egg God. <laughs> and so this is what I was waiting through. Every one of those analogies, well-intended though they might be, lands on some form of heresy yes, eventually. Every single one. Yeah. The, the water one with water, ice, steam. So anyway, I met with Gary's pastor. That's called modalism, by the way. The yes. heresy behind that's called Thank, modalism. Yes. There's a fabulous book called Experiencing the Trinity by Daryl Johnson. And oh. he mm -hmm. it's the most beautiful encounter with the Trinity, but he does such a beautiful job simply taking you through all these heresies mm -hmm. to create the picture. Anyway, so I'm at like the end of this 10-month journey, and I know I need a savior. I read a book one day called Beyond Mormonism, and as I journey with that author, Jim Spencer, he was a convert to Mormonism. He was a bishop in the church. He was a professor at one of the Brigham Young University campuses in Idaho and came to Christ and so anyway, I just knew I needed a savior. And I read his book and I'm like, God, I don't, I can't wrap my mind around you as this Trinity, but I just need you to reveal yourself to me. And then it was like, he took me through a portal into another reality. And I had not read the book of Revelation, but I entered into Revelation 4, where Jesus was on a throne and all people were just bowed down before him, crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And I just fell face down mm. on the floor 
and wept and invited Jesus to come in. Is this in your dorm room? or No, I was still living at home because oh, <laughs> wow. I was so close to the campus. Okay. I just lived at home. Okay. So yeah, that day Jesus ushered me into his kingdom. So that visual of you on your knees, Lisa, that just feels like a tremendous pivot point in the story of your life. I just want to take a moment and think about that, to reflect on that. Because all of our lives have that pivot point where we encounter the risen Christ and our story that was before is never going to be the same. And our story after that encounter with that triune God in that setting, that's an exciting story to tell too. And we're going to continue that story in a a part two. This has been so rich and so good that we want to keep this conversation going and come back and pick up from that point where you get up off your knees and and what happens next. So we look forward to that conversation in part two. Um, And we hope that you will not only share this with your friends and family members, but uh, uh, come back next week and hear part two with Lisa Brockman, author of Out of Zion, Meeting Jesus in the Shadow of the Mormon Temple, to hear, as uh, one famous person used to say, the rest of the story. And so we'll, we'll be sure to come back and do that. So until the next time, that time, which we're excited to continue that conversation, remember, my friends, uh, that Jesus is the son of the invisible God. When we talk about this Trinitarian theology, this idea that Jesus was always fully present with the Father and the Spirit in this beautiful love relationship of wholeness and shalom. The son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. See, it was in him that the Father created all things. Everything in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether you can see it or not, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things, tapantas, everything has been created through him, but also for him. You see, the Son, Jesus, is before all things, And in him, all things, all things hold together. For he is the head of the body of the church. It's in the name of our precious Lord and Savior Jesus. Until the next time when we continue this conversation with Lisa Brockman, I bid grace and peace to you. Thank you again for joining us. On behalf of Dean and the entire team, we hope you will join us for our next episode of In All Things. For more information about the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, including a directory of local churches, online resources, and much more, visit our website at www.epc.org. I'm Rachel Joseph. I pray you have an overwhelming sense of God's presence in all things today.